This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This past June, the Supreme Court issued its decision overturning affirmative action in college admissions. And ever since then, something's been nagging at me that just won't quit. It's got nothing to do with the court's decision. This nagging feeling that's bothering me has to do with how we in the media talked about one of the groups at the heart of the case. It's about how we talked about Asian American students. So whether in print, television, on social media, on the radio, including on this show, typically the coverage would, it would go something like this. There'd be a headline, an introductory line, a couple of sentences about the legal background of the case, who was suing, who was defending, then sound bites from various stakeholders in the case. And when Asian American students were quoted, it'd likely be a sentence or two from one student who opposed affirmative action, maybe tied to the uh, plaintiff's group. And sometimes there'd be one student for affirmative action. And then the story would move on. So it's been a while now, and I'm, I don't know, this is still nagging at me because, first of all, Asian American, quote, end quote. To be honest, (laughs) to me, this term verges on the meaningless, because according to the U.S. Census, there are more than 24 million people of Asian origin in this country, and they trace their heritage to dozens of nations and more than 50 ethnic groups. Now, it's not so outrageous for me to say that Cambodia has about as little in common with Pakistan as Sicily does with Luxembourg. But, you know, we don't use the term European-American, do we? Okay, so I'm simply seeking some accuracy. And as a journalist, frankly, I don't think we've been accurate. Because in all of that affirmative action coverage, it's understandable if people came away with the feeling that most, quote, Asian students are super-achieving elite college aspirants. And as a little sidebar, full disclosure, that absolutely was and is me. But the truth is, college attainment among those 24 million Americans varies tremendously. More than 75% of Indian and Taiwanese Americans hold at least a bachelor's degree. In the Laotian American community, that number drops down to 16%. So in order to uh, rid me of this nagging feeling, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to chip away at the imaginary monolith of Asian Americans in higher education. And we're going to look at the actual broad spectrum of their educational experiences. And I suspect those stories will reveal as much about this nation as a whole as it will about the communities themselves. For example, Senator Susan Paw. She's a Minnesota state senator representing the state's 38th district. She's part of the Hmong community, and Senator Pa never went to college. My mom and my new father had always instilled in us how important education was. Historically, girls, especially uh, in our home countries, were not given the privilege to go to school. And so they had always emphasized how important it was for us to go to school The only difference between uh, me and my brothers was that girls were always taught at a young age, go to school, do well, learn as much as you can. And then when you are of marrying age, then that's when you can stop your education and get married and become a good wife. 
a good daughter-in-law and a good mother. That was your role. The Hmong ethnic group originates in China's southern provinces. Under pressure from an expanded Han Chinese population, over the past couple of centuries, Hmong people moved into Thailand, Vietnam, and Laos. That's where Senator Pa's family comes from. They arrived as refugees to the United States from Laos when she was three years old. According to the 2020 census, there are about 368,000 Hmong people in America now. 23% hold a bachelor's degree or higher. 77%, like Senator Pa, do not. I remember in my third grade, I was reading so many books, and I was thinking, wow, you know, like these stories in these books would take me on an adventure. And how much I love that. And so I grew up thinking I wanted to become an author someday. And I remember telling my mom one day when I came home from school about wanting to write a book. And my mom just kind of looked at me and kind of giggled and thought I was just silly. Because especially our moms who grew up in a different time from us really didn't want to feel like they were filling their girls' heads with a lot of dreams that weren't real, that were never going to happen. I just started hiding what I really wanted from my family because I knew that it was making them unhappy. I was the oldest of eight children. So I was second mom to almost all my siblings. And my mom had had a, a tough life, right? I knew our family was struggling and I did not want to add on to her stress and her struggle. So I, after a while, I kind of understood that she was never going to see it my way. It was really tough uh, because, you know, when I was 17 years old, I had dreamt about going away for college. And my mom basically said to me, there's no way. <laughs> there's absolutely no way you could ever go away for college. Girls who go away to college are not good girls. They end up getting themselves in trouble. They end up getting themselves pregnant and not married. They end up doing all kinds of things that will shame their families. And so there's no way you would go away for college. And she said, you know, the best thing you could do to make me proud is finish high school, find a good husband, be a good wife and be a good mom. That's how you would make me proud and make all the sacrifices that I had to give and do so that you could have a better a life here in America worthy. And, you know, as someone who saw her struggle and as the oldest daughter, um, that was really hard. It was really hard to give up your dreams because you knew that that was how you were going to honor and pay tribute to your family. But for a very long time, I tried to be that perfect daughter and that perfect person for my family. And it wasn't until I was much older in my adult life, after I'd been married and had a couple of kids, that I finally found myself. And I finally went back to my dreams, not what other people told me I had to do, but what did I want to do? People always say, why didn't you go back to college? You could have done that anytime. But there was still a lot of expectations about now you're a married woman. 
So now you're under the expectations of your husband's family. And in the Hmong culture, that's very strong. And education was not something that people wanted to see their daughter-in-laws to pursue. I just didn't see politicians and leaders that looked like me with a history like mine. But it was through passion and through the commitment to try and make a difference in my community that led me to public office. Looking back, I would say, I wish I could have rebelled more because other people's expectations of you and their restraints on what you can or can't do should not be your own. And I would say that that's also why now in my adult life, I am so rebellious. (laughs) It's almost the opposite now because I'm like, no way, no one's going to set limits on me. You know, it's because you start to see that for so long, You let those things oppress you and decide for you what your future is. And that's also why, again, you know, I went to public office is really to fight against some of that. Minnesota State Senator Susan Paw. She represents Minnesota's 38th district. So as you heard, Senator Pa hails from the Hmong community now in the United States. They're one of the 50-plus ethnicities represented when we talk about Asian Americans. So joining us now is Julie Park. She's an associate professor of education at the University of Maryland College Park. She also directs the College Admissions Futures Collaborative, whose research seeks to gain a greater understanding of how admissions policies have an impact on equity. Professor Park, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, so first of all, tell us what you hear in Senator Paw's story. Yeah, I'm first just deeply moved. Um, And it's funny because I'm actually doing this interview from Minneapolis today because I'm here for a conference. And so it's, it's, interesting just to be in this different context um, or just this context that has um, shaped so many people's lives, Minnesota, and just the rich history of migration um, and the vibrant communities that are here. Um, You know, a couple of things came to mind. One, I think, was just trying to, was curiosity, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, trying to make sense of why her experience and the experience of um, some in her generation or a number of especially women right in her generation um may have experienced that um and what are the different both you know community related dynamics but also as a social scientist generally we oftentimes zoom out and sometimes there's a bigger picture or set of structural factors that influence you know why people do what they do and the behaviors that sometimes communities take for granted or see as normal are shaped by broader developments. And part of me was just curious about how those things play out with the gender dynamics. And so it was a, a note to self to do some more learning. <laughs> Another thought was that maybe I should let my kids rebel a lot right now while they're little. So, <laughs> get out of their system. You know, 
stay on the straight and narrow when they're uh, older. I don't know. Although <laughs> so Senator Senator Paul attributes her rebellious streak to the thing that brought her into public service, so there's a there's a, a, a positive there. But uh, Professor Park, stand by for just a moment because when we come back, I want to talk first about sort of some of those uh, the zoom out impressions that we get uh, regarding quote unquote Asian Americans and other educational experiences, and then we'll we'll keep we'll dig into them uh, a bit more. So that's when we come back. This is on point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're exploring the true spectrum of Asian Americans' experiences with higher education. And every time I say Asian Americans, I'm saying that in quotes because part of the point, part of the exploration of this hour is the fact that Asian Americans are absolutely not a monolith and they represent more than you know several dozen nations and more than 50 ethnicities as their stories of origin. So uh, Professor Julie Park you know, before we get into slicing that monolith down, I would love to understand if there are any generalities that can roughly be applied to uh, the 24 million Asian Americans in this country and and their experiences with education. Because, because for example, when you look at uh, some studies or, again, media reports uh, about academic achievement— Here's one from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, It says that many explanations have been offered to account for Asian Americans' advantage in education. So there's this idea there that overall there's some kind of um, advantage. Or how about uh, this other uh, study that says Asian American students typically score higher than other students on America's most popular college gatekeeper as they do on other standardized tests. For instance, among high school students who graduated in 2020, Asian American students scored an average of 632 on the SAT math section compared with 547 for white students. Similar uh, pattern in the language section. So is there any truth to that about general performance? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> so it's uh, as an academic, I have to say, it's complicated for everything, right? There are trends. And when you look at averages and kind of aggregates, right, that's where Asian Americans um, 
you know, uh, when you compare them to other racial ethnic groups on the whole, right, when you're lumping everyone together, we do tend to see, you know, higher scores or higher outcomes um, related to educational attainment. And part of what drives that is that even though it's a tremendously diverse group, you know, made up of so many different ethnic subgroups who have all of these different histories with migration and, you know, the reasons why people came over to this country in the first place, six groups, um, Filipinos, Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese, Americans, uh, Chinese Americans, and Indian Americans actually make up 85% of the overall Asian American community. And that's not to say their experiences are more important or anything like that, but just to say that you have certain groups that dominate or that make up sort of, you know, well over half of this group. And sometimes, you know, and of course, all of those communities are diverse in and of themselves. Um, But when you have certain groups, for instance, that on the aggregate, you know, within their ethnic subgroup, for instance, um, Indian Americans, right, or Chinese Americans who have somewhat um, higher um, for Indian Americans, right, having higher uh, median household income, for example, um, that can sort of tip the scale mm. in a way that sometimes um, can overshadow some of the tremendous diversity that when you peel back the curtain and you look underneath the surface um, is more complex. Mm. So let's talk about some of the reasons uh, that people offer when they look at that aggregate data, um, as you were talking about. So first of all, um, there's this discussion I've, I've read frequently about um, maybe it's because of uh, Asian Americans are more likely to have dual parent households. They're more likely to try either live or try to live in, uh, in school districts uh, with better schools. Any truth to that? On average, right, or in within certain groups, but certainly not all groups. Um, so on average, we when, at least when we compare to other racial ethnic groups on the whole, you know, Asian Americans, for instance, on average, are more likely to go to racially integrated schools, say, than in comparison to Black, Latinx, mm-hmm. and Indigenous peers. Um, they're more likely to go to um, schools that have more socioeconomic resources, which naturally are linked with higher outcomes. Okay. So there are a couple of other uh, reasons that have been offered in the past. Um, we'll come back to those in a little bit. But since you, you mentioned um, the fact of the, the, the great diversity within these uh, 50 different ethnic, group, ethnic groups, even if they're generally lumped into those top six um, countries of origin, uh, we actually have a, a, a great example of that, the diversity within those particular groups, because uh, this is... Misha Shahid. She's a 23-year-old graduate student at the University of Connecticut. She's South Asian American, specifically Pakistani American. My dad immigrated to the United States about 23 years ago, and he's worked in computer science and insurance for mostly all of his life. And so we're like aggressively middle class. And back in Pakistan, Misha's dad had two master's degree in po- degrees in political science and computer science. He had a career as an IT manager of a power plant and as a part-time professor. However, like many other immigrants, it didn't mean that his credentials automatically carried over to the United States when he came here. Often, the U.S. does not recognize certain degrees from abroad because they come from non-accredited universities or lack the certifications and licenses required to practice those professions in the United States. He struggled a lot acquiring an education when he came to the United States. 
he was working 24-7 at small part-time jobs in order to pay for his tuition. And it was hard for him because in Pakistan, he was already a professor. So just to see that differentiation in the United States versus his homeland created this like unwavering expectation for us to excel academically. So we wouldn't struggle like he did. From kindergarten to eighth grade, I would say I was like doing really well in school, which opened up AP classes, honors classes for high school. But the problem was when I actually began taking those classes, I was getting C's and D's for the most part. A lot of times I would say that I didn't want to be in honors, I didn't want to be in AP classes, but was pushed by my educators to do it because they thought I was apt enough to do it. One class I really remember advocating for was geometry honors. And I remember going to my counselor having like a 57%. And my counselor straight up just told me, I'm like, no, you can't do this because colleges are not going to see once you drop down that you were in a honors class. So it's just possibly better if you fail it or graduate with like a 60 for the course rather than dropping down. And I remember telling her, but the problem is I'm not learning anything. So I have an older sister who went to Yukon and typically in like South Asian households, whatever the older sibling does, the younger ones kind of look up to that and that's their expectation. And on the navigation system for college applications, there is like this little like formula thing, which if you put in your grades, your SAT scores, it told you if you had a likelihood of entering that university. And I remember plugging in everything with my advisor and my advisor had basically encouraged me, don't even apply because you're not going to get in. So I remember like hearing my heart break because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the expectation of me. And now I'm not going to be able to fulfill that. I ended up going to a community college. At first, my parents were really hesitant, but thankfully by then, like my dad had also established himself as a professor in the United States. And sometimes I guess immigrant parents have this like mentality that community colleges for people who quote unquote gave up. But he saw the resiliency and students who come from community colleges. So he was just like, listen, I get it. It's not conventional, but you have to work hard. It was like that kind of expectation that if I'm letting you do this, then don't disappoint me. I promised myself I wouldn't take classes that were going to be mentally burdensome and just really try to explore just learning. So I took a anthropology class, English class, a math class, just a whole bunch of classes, I guess that sparked interest. And right off the bat, 4.0 GPA, and then got inducted into honor societies for community colleges. Um, so after that, I was like, listen, like, I think I'm ready to go to Yukon. I got accepted as a transfer student. A lot of South Asians have this narrative where if girls aren't educated, they go through a lot of hardship in their adult life, where it's like this expectation that in order to be self-autonomous, you have to be educated. 
So for so long, like my main role was just like being a student and then taking like political science classes, which is my major, I realized, oh my God, like I actually love learning about all of this. So bringing that to my own self, like school then became something I look forward to. Misha Shaheed. She's a graduate student at the University of Connecticut, where she's pursuing a master's degree in political science. Okay, so Professor Park, Misha's story is one that brings us to, I think, perhaps the most important thing there is to understand about the, again, quote-unquote, Asian-American education experience. It sounds like it's tied very, very strongly to the, the immigration path that various families have taken to come to the United States. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, very much so. Um, and so one of the dominant explanations for, you know, why on average, right, are there these higher educational outcomes um, for Asian Americans is related to this concept called hyperselectivity. And so for um, a number of the biggest wave, right, of um, Asian, Amer- Asian migration happened um, during the post-1965 uh, wave. And so basically there's Immigration Reform Act. Immigration policies were drastically um, revised, right, and reform mm-hmm. that opened the opportunity for um, Asians to come over, but often not, not a random sample of Asians, not just any Asians, but um, highly educated ones, um, ones who are coming over for graduate st- school ones who were fulfilling um, key needs in the U.S. economy or in just related different needs related to healthcare and whatnot. And so because this was, you know, the sort of the most prominent wave of Asian migration up to date, um, the, the idea and, you know, uh, scholars like Jennifer Lee and Minzo have written um, and the scores of others have written on this um, is that this wave sort of set the pace um, for everyone for a lot of people who were to follow, um, you know, these people who came over, they naturally, um, you know, they tended to be well-educated. They had um, strong aspirations for their children, et cetera, and they expected them to meet them. And in turn, they set up these different types of infrastructures within their communities, what we call ethnic economies. And uh-huh. so mm-hmm, they can provide things like test prep and um ethnic newspapers that put like, hey, so-and-so went to Harvard in the headline, right? And that kind of creates this feedback loop for even some um, individuals of that group, even if they're sort of from more moderate or lower SES means, if they are bright, they or they, if they, you know, if they're interested in school, or right, or their parents see that and they say, hey, you should do what so-and-so's kid is doing, and they kind of get swept into that feedback loop. Yeah. Okay. So, so then let me ask you something else about that. As you said, that first wave post the Immigration Act of 1965, so 65 into the 70s, when it came to the different uh, groups of you know, South Asian, East Asian, Southeast Asian Amer- Americans coming over, it tended to select for, as you said, more highly educated and uh, people with means. But then thereafter, there's a lot of family-based immigration coming in, into the United States. And there's a great diversity of socioeconomic diversity uh, within yes. these groups mm-hmm. now. Does that sort of change the, the picture when it comes to education? 
Yeah, somewhat. But the idea is that, so for instance, right, in later decades, we saw family reunification policies, right, um, which sponsor, which where families were allowed to sponsor, um, you know, relatives, and you had more economic diversity from that wave. Uh, there, you know, with that economic diversity, I think you did see more um, diverse outcomes. But at the same time, because that initial post-1965 wave had sort of set the pace, right, in terms of what are the expectations, um, later waves of immigrants and their children, they were either, you know, they were able to either in some way access or benefit those resources, or they were, even if they didn't live up to them, they had to wrestle with them in other ways, right? And so sometimes that led to, you know, different pressures um, on young people, right, or stress um, and, you know, feeling stereotype or, oh, I have to live up to this stereotype. Um, and Jennifer Lee and Minso call that uh, the success frame, this the idea, mm -hmm. sort of this idea that young people feel like whether they want to or not, that there's this image um, that they have to live up to um, that was very much shaped by that post-1965 cohort. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but then I'm thinking back to Senator Pa, right? Because two things about uh, her story, which I, I think are important to mention again, uh, is A, her family came over as refugees, right? Because we have a lot of, particularly from uh, Southeast Asia, Southeast Asian communities who, let's be frank, due to American military activity in Southeast Asia, uh, many, many refugees arrived in the United States be, uh, because of that. And then also we have um, a diversity of cultural values within the various groups of, of Asian Americans that can uh, influence the paths that uh, uh, their children take. I mean, are, are, those are things that we ought to pay attention to, right? Yes, very much. Um, so, you know, Senator Pa, she was a refugee. Her parents were refugees. Um, and so it's an incredibly different pathway than, for instance, the student whose story we just saw or, you know, my own father. He came over for graduate study in the 19, um, early 1970s. Right. And so it's a very different path. OK. But then, I mean, it does. Is that often enough factored into I mean, I started out by putting a, a mirror on us as mem on me and the media as a whole on how we talk about the various groups of Asian Americans. I don't see the this uh, immigration story diversity being reflected adequately enough in, in coverage. Yeah, I agree. I think there are a lot of things about Asian Americans that aren't talked about. So, you know, of course, the Harvard case dominated the headlines, um, but it was rarely mentioned um, that well over 40 percent of Asian American undergraduates, they attend, you know, not the Ivy League, they attend community colleges, right? That's a huge portion um, of the community, um, but no one was suing anyone there. So I guess it didn't make the headlines. Right. Well, actually, swinging back to affirmative action, given what you said about socioeconomic uh, diversity and for for many uh, uh, Asian Americans, their 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 kids may be the first to even apply to college. Uh, just want to get your quick thoughts about if there is the, some uh, disadvantage now with the elimination of affirmative action that those groups of Asian Americans may be feeling. Sorry, could you rephrase the question? <laughs> no, no, no. You, no. <laughs> I just wanted to take it all in. <laughs> yeah, no, Make you sure are I'm right to call me out about an overly okay. complex question no, here. You're okay. Instead, you're what I'm going to do since we have to take a break here is I will uh, give myself a minute to think of okay. a simpler way <laughs> no to ask that question when we come back from the break. So today we are talking about the true diversity of educational experiences within this monolith that we call Asian Americans. And we'll have more simply and elegantly when we come back. This is On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. A note about something we're working on for a future show. California has just joined a couple of other states in passing laws requiring media literacy education for everything from kindergartners to high schoolers. So required media media literacy training. So we want to hear from you. If you're a parent who's thinking a lot about what your child sees I guess, mostly online in the age of digital children. Um, What kind of media literacy education would you like your kids to get? Um, How do you think it would be best to help children understand and figure out fact from fiction when it comes to all the different kinds of media they consume? Do you have anything that gives you pause about media literacy education that might come through schools? So give us a your thoughts, you can do that on the OnPoint Vox Pop app. Look for OnPoint Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. Or leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's for a future show. Today we are talking about the true diversity of experience within the Asian American community about uh, when it comes to education and higher education. And Professor Park, I uh, apologize for my absolute word salad <laughs> before the break. But what I was trying to get at is... Um, when it comes to affirmative action, right, I'm trying to put together some some uh, dots that we, we've laid out during the show. You said that when it comes to elite schools and Asian Americans, what we're really talking about are mostly uh, Chinese Americans, Indian Americans, and maybe one or two other subgroups. That means that there are many, many Asian Americans who are coming from places, uh, you know, f- refugee families, lower socioeconomic um, group families, who actually relied on uh, things like affirmative action in order to maybe be one of the first people in their families to attend college. So uh, this is becoming l- less clear than it was in my mind during the break. But so so would the loss of affirmative action have a negative impact on those families? Sure, absolutely. And I I definitely get where you're going now. (laughs) Um, I should say I served as a consulting expert on the Harvard case on the side of Harvard. So my opinions are my own, but very much so. Um, You know, in terms of who was going to say the Ivy League, et cetera, probably the most prominent groups included, you know, Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Taiwanese Americans, Indian Americans, et cetera. But there there are, you know, race conscious admissions, which was the ability to consider race and ethnicity. That's important for Asian Americans. 
Americans, that ethnicity part, in a limited fashion, did open the door um, for um, Asian Americans of different ethnicities, um, including, you know, Hmong, Cambodian, uh, Vietnamese Americans, um, but also some, you know, also within East Asian Americans as well. And you know, something that people might not realize is that, you know, George, the Georgetown uh, Center for Education and the Workforce, they did this study where they looked at test scores of those who were attending the most selective colleges. And they said if admissions was only based on test scores, 20 percent of the Asian Americans who are currently enrolled in those colleges, they would not be admitted. They mm. would lose their seats. So there's this perception that, oh, all the Asian Americans at these schools are, you know, uh, super high test scoring, et cetera. And that isn't the case at all. Um, and so very much uh, um, race conscious admissions policies were a critical tool in expanding opportunity um, across uh, the spectrum for Asian Americans from different communities. Mm. Okay. So thank you for that that uh, answer to my initially muddled question. I'm going to bl- blame it on Friday-itis. But um, <laughs> so, so let's get back to sort of uh, immigration stories, the diversity of the educational experience. Um, But I want to talk for a moment about maybe some commonalities that do exist. Uh, And we're going to do that through listening to Simon Wong. He's an on-point listener from Los Angeles. He's ethnically Chinese, came to the United States from Hong Kong when he was nine years old. And Simon tells us that from early on, his parents always emphasized the value of education, but not in the stereotypical tiger parenting way. When we immigrated into the United States, we had very little. They were so busy trying to put um, food on the table to make sure that I was actually you know, housed and clothed and fed that they did not have the time or energy or the resources to be tiger parents. But now, as a parent to two children ages 7 and 12 and a software engineer with the means to provide opportunities for his kids, Simon says he's become a tiger parent who encourages his kids to push themselves to be their best. And he admits that that, of course, doesn't always go over well with the kids. They do say sometimes, how come... You know, Nathan next door, how come they have to do so much less homework? How come they do less extracurricular activities? Uh, They don't have to practice piano 45 minutes every day. Um, That has come up. And the way that I have explained to them, I said, look, this effort that you are spending is a way for you to prepare for the future. And that it is, again, a way to build your skills, build your confidence, um, practice perseverance. And Simon says that for him, tiger parenting isn't necessarily about his children going to the elite schools. It's more about their learning important values that his parents passed on to him. I want to build my children's character first and foremost because I believe that that is a way to overcome future you know, obstacles in life later on. Life is so demanding of us. Um, and, and maybe it is part of my kind of immigrant experience that the work that we put in hopefully would have a direct correlation to how much we can achieve and how our life could be successful later on. That's Simon Wong. He's the father of two and a software engineer and listens to On Point in Los Angeles. So 
Professor Julie Park, Simon's experience really kind of echoes with my own, and it also uh, reminds me of something that's frequently thought about Asian American families, regardless of what ethnicity uh, they represent. And that's about this this general sense that um, uh, there's perhaps a greater work ethic, greater motivation, greater focus on specifically education as a means to advancement in this country. I mean, that feels generally true to me, but feelings aren't facts. So, you know, is there evidence to back that up? Uh, It's an interesting thought. And so oftentimes I'll hear things like, oh, Asians, they value education so much or they value, um, you know, hard work, etc. And I often ask questions like, oh, do you think other groups don't value education or other groups don't want the best for their children. And we actually do have polling data about how different groups, racial ethnic groups, feel about, you know, education and wanting their children to succeed. And generally, last time I checked, pretty much all parents want their kids to do well. All I think all parents want the best for their children. That's like a very kind of like primal desire. Where Asian Americans differ between other groups, I think, is in terms of what sorts of payoffs they've been able to see for that hard work and how some of those dynamics differ between um, the roadblocks that different communities of color may hit. Um, And so for Asian Americans, and not all Asian Americans, but especially, um, you know, I'd say among certain segments of the East Asian American community, South Asians, um, where there's been this sense of, you know, once again, I talked about that feedback loop, right? You look, you see what others in the community are doing. It seems to be benefiting from them. You're going to be like, okay, my kids are going to do those piano lessons and that after school uh, math worksheets and things like that. Um, and, you know, and generally in this society where some Asian Americans are able to reap some of the benefits, they have on average higher access to certain types of labor markets or educational markets or resources that other groups don't have. They're able to get, I think, the payoff from that hard work. Um, so I, I sort of the shorthand would be, I think every community values education. It's just how are different communities able to translate those aspirations into into concrete gains. And we know from the research that Asian Americans have created some kind of unique infrastructures to be able to see that payoff for their children. And of course, that creates and fosters that feedback loop um, in a way that to the point where people are like, oh, yeah, this is just normal. They see Uh culture as, oh, everyone's doing it, right? Uh, Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting because, you know, I was also looking at um, studies about educational achievement overall, K through 12 here, we're not talking about about college, but I guess it's factored into college readiness. And there seems to be a lot of evidence in educational research that, um, you know, it's not just like academic capabilities that matter, but things such as self-regulation, motivation, uh, resilience, as we call it, that all have uh, um, an influence on academic performance. Some people suggest uh, that is there something about various forms of I'm pausing here because I don't think there's any such thing as typical parenting, but Asian American mm-hmm. parenting that might better cultivate those qualities? Hmm. That's an interesting question. 
So I think in thinking of the feedback loop, right, what mm-hmm. is this sort of like, okay, what's the formula for success? And I think what people observe around them is, you know, this idea that, okay, well, if, in this system, we hope that hard work will pay off. And so there are some studies um, in terms of like Amy Shin and other scholars have done and trying to hone in on what are some of these elements that might be more prevalent within Asian Americans on average than other groups. And one is the idea that you can get better at um, math in particular through through practice, through, you know, through continue, you know, through doing those extra worksheets, through, you know, getting tutoring or et cetera. And we can see that there are, you know, a number of gains that can be linked to that. And I think, you know, on one hand, that's sort of an attitude or, you know, some might call it a mindset. But I think there's a broader social structure that's influencing things like the hyper selectivity that I talked about uh-huh. before and the infrastructure um, within certain segments of the Asian American community that definitely reinforce and perpetuate those norms. Okay, that's so so interesting because I'm actually looking um, at uh, one of the papers that Amy, Sh- Amy Shin co-authored um, mm-hmm. or yeah, co-wrote and this is a 2014 paper so I'll grant that it's a little bit dated but uh, in this paper she said we find that the Asian American educational advantage over whites is attributable mainly to Asian students exerting greater af- academic effort and not to advantages in tested cognitive abilities or sociodemographics. Okay. Well, in the time that we have, I want to hear from one more voice. Uh, this is another young voice, Albus Dew. He's an on-point listener in College Park, Maryland. He's 18 years old and says he's of Chinese origin. And he says his parents were what he calls a softer version of tiger parents. They didn't put any ultimatums on him, but academics were central and they did monitor his grades. This all came to a head around middle school when we would have a huge fight every time I got a C on an algebra quiz, which was almost every algebra quiz. Um, and this kind of burnt all of us out. Uh, towards the end of middle school and the beginning of high school, my parents slowly eased off because they were running out of energy and they were seeing that even though they weren't watching my grades as much anymore, my grades were doing just fine and actually improving improving to the point where Albus thrived in high school. He got straight A's, high scores on 10 AP tests. And more importantly to him, he also was able to become an Eagle Scout. He worked part-time and had a thriving social life. I think I'm a pretty well-rounded adult today, and I don't think that it would have been possible if I had a more stereotypically Chinese upbringing or a more stereotypically American upbringing. I think that my stricter childhood instilled in me a high need for achievement and my looser adolescence allowed me to achieve those heights in areas that were not just academics. Albus is thoughtful, though, about those dual influences and that the fact is they sometimes came at a cost. I don't know if I would say it was worth it because, you know, sometimes my relationship with my parents did get pretty rocky. But in the end, it all turned out very well, and I have a a very good relationship with them today. Albus Du, he's 18, listens to On Point in College Park, Maryland. So, Julie, this is the other um, broad stereotype, I'll just put it that way, that comes with the, uh, the monolithic view of Asian Americans and, um, and education. And that is uh, the kind of parenting people believe is prevalent uh, comes at a high cost to their, their children. I mean... If there's diversity in educational experience, certainly there's di- diversity in, in parenting. But I wonder what you think about that uh, that cost narrative. 
Yeah, I think, you know, definitely within the Asian American community, um, there are significant concerns related to mental health, related to, um, you know, just the sort of the fallout, right? The dark side of the model minority stereotype, right? What happens when you don't live up to expectations and how um, both young people can be very hard on themselves, parents can be hard on children, it can strain family relationships and whatnot. Um, And once again, as a social scientist, I'll zoom out a little bit and say for a lot of these families, you know, it also doesn't help. It's not just a matter of, you know, parenting, but a lot of these families, especially if they're working around the clock, right, to put food on the table um, and don't always have as much time or, you know, effort just to hang out with kids and spend quality time, right? So it's like, it feels like you don't always have that time. So you have to reinforce these norms and, you know, your kid are, you know, some people say, oh, my kid's my retirement plan, which actually sounds like it could cause some issues. Um, And so, yeah, very much so, um, I think for a lot of, um, you know, first generation, especially Asian American families, um, it's something that people in the field are very uh, mental health clinicians and outreach programs are very interested in trying to just help um, reach out to Asian American young people to get them resources to help them um, to navigate to know like you you can survive as but you need to also um, get help right and to try to normalize things like counseling or to try to mm-hmm. have you know um, community outreach through community-based um, outlets to parents themselves also to help them recognize you know you're doing this because you love your children let's not lose sight of that love well Julie Park is an associate professor of education at the University of Maryland College Park. She's author of Race on Campus, Debunking Myths with Data, and When Diversity Drops, Race, Religion, and Affirmative Action in Higher Education. And Professor Park joined us today to really get a finer, more granular understanding of the broad spectrum of experience when it comes to the many people that make up the various Asian American communities in this country and uh, their experiences with higher education. So, Professor Park, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Point. 